Chakua Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week we talk to the managing director of the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust on him starting racing with us. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. Hope you're well. Hope you enjoyed the amazing sunshine we enjoyed here in the UK over the last bank holiday. Hope you're getting your Jags out as we were able to go to more shows and events. And one of the big shows and events you cannot miss because you'll be angry with yourself if you do, is exactly one month from the day I'm recording this. It is, of course, the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage, postponed from May, but now back with a big one-day event on the 4th of July. So, to tell us more about what we can expect, how to get our tickets, and all of the amazing anniversaries that we're celebrating is Andy Weber, who's been organising this event for the JC. Hi, Andy. Hello, Wayne. How are you? I'm all right. How's the organisation going? Have you slept yet? It's all going well, but no, I'm not sleeping. <laughs> Working 24-7 to get this event done. I'm really looking forward to an event actually uh, going ahead. Having organised um, last year's event, what was going to be Newbie, and having organised this year's event that was going to be Blenheim Palace, and having neither event uh, going ahead is very demoralising, but... Vista is going ahead. We've got a, a great uh, range of cars there and activities on the day. So um, really looking forward to it. Scary, though, that it is only a, a month to go. Kind of get the feeling there's like pent-up demand for this. Everyone's itching, scratching at the door almost to get down to Bista for this big event. And it really is the first time that the entire Jaguar Enthusiast Club have had one event to go to where everyone can meet up, really for the first time since the pandemic began. Well, indeed, and, and, and there must be a lot of pent-up demand because we have now sold well over 900 tickets, um, which I think is fantastic in the environment we're in. Um, I would love to get uh, more. I, I mean, I'm aiming for 1,200 cars there on the day wing, um, and, and obviously we want some good weather as well. Well, that's right, and of course we've got all the anniversaries to celebrate. Uh, there are other events throughout the calendar by other people focusing, of course, on 60 years of the E-Type. But we've got others to celebrate as well because of the diverse range of Jaguars that the club looks after. We've got 20 years of the X-Type, 60 years of the Mark 10, the XK8 celebrating 25 years as well, and, of course, the 15th anniversary of the X-150, the aluminium-bodied follow-up to the XK8. Lots to celebrate, but talking just about E-Types for a moment, we've got some special E-Types that we've already announced through the Friday Spotlight. We've talked about them here on the podcast. Stephen Daniels came on the podcast on our last episode to announce a very special D-type that we've got coming, but we've since had some new E-types join the displays, haven't we? And these have come from one of the club sponsors, CMC. Tell us more. Yeah, so C CMC, Classic Motorcars, Bridge North, um, a great partner and sponsor of, of the club and indeed this event. And they're coming along um, with a display of cars, which includes... Uh, one VHP, which is the very first right-hand drive production um, Jaguar E-Type, um, which was supplied by Jaguar Cars in August 1961 um, uh, from Henleys in London. Um, so we've got that coming along. We've also got 1600RW, which is chassis number four and was originally uh, Lofty England's um, E-Type. Lofty England obviously being the, the Jaguar team manager who masterminded Jaguar's five Le Mans wins in the 50s. Um, and we've also got 1600 HP, which is the first E-Type with internal bonnet locks. 
which was a showroom demonstrator in New York um, until 1967. Um, so we've got some really rare cars coming along from, from CMC. And obviously, um, we, we have our own uh, E-Type Concours as well. Um, and we have cars that were involved in E50 celebrations. And... Uh, obviously, the, the massive E-Type display from cars that will be there on the day as well. Well, we're looking forward to seeing all those E-Types gathered together at Bista, but I understand that through the concourse display, the competition that we're running there offers E-Type owners a money-can't-buy, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to enter as a successful winner from the concourse at the Summer Jaguar Festival to then enter their car to Salon Privé. But it's not that they just get to enter, they get a massive package and an experience around it, don't they? They do indeed, Wayne. And it, and it really is a money-can't-buy um, experience. Um, you know, we have been really lucky to be able to partner with, uh, with Salon Privé um, so that we're able to to give our concourse, our E-type concourse entrance, the opportunity of winning this prize, and um, and it really is you know a superb prize. They they not only get entry into Salon Privé uh, concourse, um, but they are included in the four days of the event um, as well. Um, so a real kind of money can't buy um, prize here. Uh, being offered by Salon Privé, who actually will be um, at the event uh, themselves um, with with a stand there. So uh, on our website, they, uh, our our entrants can enter on our website and they can see full details of what the Salon Privé prize is. But it's worth a fantastic amount of money, up to £3,500 worth of prize there for the concourse winner. And full VIP as well. I mean, they do treat you like you're famous when you take your E-Type along and enter at Salon Privé. You're going to be looked after, aren't you? It really is. It's the creme de la creme of, of British concourse. Um, and having been there myself, um, it, 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 you are look like a, looked after like a VIP, exactly like you say, Wayne. Um, it's a fantastic prize. Um and we just hope that we, we, we're going to have, well, we already have a, a, a great showing in the concourse, a great booking so far. And so it's going to be really tough competition on the day. Well, you can enter on the day, of course. Also, you can enter by pre-registering, as Andy says, via jc.org.uk forward slash events. Go on there. You'll see the listing for the concourse entries for the Summer Jaguar Festival or follow the links from Friday Spotlight, the email we deliver to you every Friday or indeed from the festival page as well and uh, get yourself in there because you just never know. Your E-Type might be the one that gets picked up by the judges as going forward to Salon Privé in September and you really will have a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Uh, I'm looking forward to a once-in-a-lifetime experience of my own that's attached to Summer Jaguar Festival because, of course, I'll be hosting the live stage and we'll have our usual big screen where I'll be roving with my crew to talk to you out on the show field. We'll be interviewing you about all sorts of different cars that you've brought along to the show, discovering some of the fantastic stories that will be amongst the exhibits, also telling you more about some of the cars that we've got on display from places like the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and also on the live stage interviewing some of our celebrity guests including Kevin McLeod from Channel 4's Grand Designs. He's a massive Jaguar fan 
He's a great listen. Do join us for that as part of the Summer Jaguar Festival. I'm looking forward to interviewing him in person. Of course, he's appeared on this podcast before and uh, we'll be assembling a whole lineup of celebrities that many whom have been on this podcast for you to meet in the flesh and ask your own questions to via the live stage. So looking forward to that. And uh, also, if you fancy uh, a bit of lubrication to help the day go by, there is a gin experience as well, Andy, isn't there? Tell us more about that. There is a gin experience, uh, Skywave Gin, who are based at Vista Heritage. They're off to offering some gin experiences um, on the morning of Sunday the 4th of July. Um, and if you look at the spotlight, there are details of how to book these gin experiences um, in, in the spotlight. And also worth pointing out, Wayne, you say that you're on the, on the, on the stage. We've got the largest uh, outdoor telly in, uh, in the UK. Uh, and it's not just VIPs. We will obviously have the uh, the other sponsors of the show that you're able to um, to interview as well. So we've got the simulators from Pirelli there, which are absolutely fantastic. Uh, we've got S&G Barrett, CMC, as we've mentioned, Eagle E-Types, Maguire's, Swallows Racing, the list goes on. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned, Salon Privé and Lockton's next to them as well. So Lots to see and lots to do, as well as the cars out on track wing. And places to spend your money, because we'll have loads of trade stands for you to go and uh, buy bits from, and food as well, lots of nice food and drink. And if you haven't yet got your tickets, you can still get them. There's just about enough time, but you have to be quick. Get along to jc.org.uk forward slash festival and join us for the Summer Jaguar Festival 2021. They say it couldn't happen. It's going to happen. We'll be there, and so should you be. So join us, jc.org.uk forward slash festival. And uh, Andy, hectic, but looking forward to it all the same. I am indeed very, very hectic, Wayne, but I can't wait to, uh, can't wait to get there on the day. Um, I'll be uh, in my little control point, I think, most of, the, the, most of the day. But if anybody wants to come and say hi, come and say hi to me. Um, I just hope that everybody has a great time and we get some fantastic weather. See you there. Thanks, Andy. Motorsport Heroes with Richard West's Hall of Fame. Well, this week on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast Hall of Fame, we're going a little off-piste for us. It is someone who passed away in May of this year and someone will be sadly missed by all those who met him and interviewed him as I did. And Richard West, you've been reading up on Lucky John, John Sprinzel, and he's a fascinating character, isn't he? He is indeed, Wayne. And in fact, a little bit like when Colin Porter suggested uh, Archie Scott Brown recently in our conversation, you, you mentioned John. Obviously, I'd heard of him because he'd been involved in the BTCC back in the 50s. And coming from a rallying background, obviously, I was very aware of his name. But it wasn't until I really delved into the Internet and also some excellent material with your knowledge of the brand that you sent across to me. What an amazing character and what an incredible life he led. He was born over in Germany, but for obvious reasons, with a name like Sprinzel in October 1930, the family moved to the UK. His family started a fashion business, actually, in North London. As a kid, he got ill and ended up reading lots about sailing and water sports, which ended up being a sort of lifelong passion of his. Motorsport was certainly not in his family, and there's no indication from reading his 
books that he's written, and there's been many of them, or any of the interviews I had with John when he was with us, that motorsport had come from within his family. But it all began when he used to help out in a local garage in his spare time just because he was curious, and I suspect for a little bit of uh, change on the side. And it sparked a, a love of motor racing and engineering that was to take him into a career in motorsport. And he really did start at the grassroots, and by that I mean uh, rallying his mum's Austin A30. <laughs> and, you know, when you when you and I were talking about this during the week, I, I went back over some of my old rallying files, and there's some wonderful shots in there of things like S4 Quattros and Lancia Deltas in the middle of the night storming through wet forests. I just cannot imagine being in the middle of Kilda Forest at 3 o'clock in the morning in an Austin A30. But the guy drove with immense verb, and he actually ended finishing in the year he did the RAC rally in 1955 in that uh, A30. He finished sixth in class uh, in a rally that saw some of the worst conditions in the history of the event. So, viva la Austin A30, really. And amazing, he was very much grassroots racing and rallying. He drove all sorts of British cars, Triumph TR2s amongst them, which was the subject I interviewed him on some years ago, a car that he absolutely loved and adored, actually. But he's probably more uh, better known, really, for his work with uh, midgets and sprites, which we'll touch on. But he ended up being headhunted uh, by the BMC competitions manager at Abingdon then, Marcus Chambers, and they supported him in his rallies right the way through to the late 1950s. You can't imagine someone from a major manufacturing works team picking someone off an auto test these days, can you, Richard? No, and it also went further than that because, as you rightfully say, you know, shortly after that, he started getting phone calls from people and asking him about, uh, you know, his adventures. He, he went down and did the BARC National at Goodwood, which he won in an A35. But interestingly, again, just through a bit of research, his co-driver in his, in his uh, Mark Von Austin Healy Sprite was none other than Stuart Turner. And, of course, Stuart became the leading light of Ford International Motorsport and particularly rallying. And was one of the guys when Ford were based over at Boreham in Essex who brought great drivers like Harry Vatten into the fore. So he was obviously a very talented guy because Stuart, an incredibly outspoken but very capable person and co-driver, there they were, you know, and off they went and did the RAC Rally Championship together. And one of the biggest personalities, Stuart Turner, as well, of the rally scene and remains so today. If ever, Absolutely. by the way, you're listening to this and you get a chance to see Stuart Turner talk go because it's hilarious he's a man of great personality he's also a great he's a great mimic and he's capable of taking jackie stewart off to a level that i think even jackie is amazed <laughs> by <laughs> it must have been a great atmosphere between those two john sprinzel stuart turner winning the rac british rally championship in a mark one austin healy sprite just an incredible atmosphere inside the car and at the after party, I imagine. And they went on to win, as you say, the BTRDA in 1959. And then... As you say, there was that monumental change in John Sprinzel's career when, in 1959, he got headhunted again by Donald Healy's Motor Company in London, where alongside Geoffrey Healy, he developed the legendary now Sebring Sprite, which basically took a little sports car that was aimed at the discounted sports car market. It was a it was a car that was there to get people who normally couldn't afford sports cars into sports cars, and they turned it into an international race winner. It became the stuff of legend. 
and he also rallied them himself um some 10 years later he went on to do that legendary london to sydney marathon rally uh driving an mg midget again a rally that just couldn't happen these days can you imagine london to sydney now competing across all of those different countries no, not at all. I mean, you, there are some wonderful black and white photographs on the internet of him, and there's one of him pulling into it. Looks like a service area, judging by the background and the eucalyptus trees and, and the buildings. It looks like he's already arrived in Australia in this tiny little car with with a fiberglass bubble on, because obviously he was quite a, a tall, thin man. And you look at the thing, and you think the conditions in that car, particularly in a hot Australian outback, must have been absolutely grueling. But it certainly never put him off. That's for sure. The pivotal time for him getting involved with those cars was put down really to a win at Goodwood. John was interviewed about the the win that he just pulled off on TV and not really knowing what to say to the TV cameras. He just said that, uh, oh, the car's been prepared by this amazing tuning company that no one's ever heard of called Speedwell. He made it up. Uh, and then later had to follow through on that fib and actually found the Speedwell company himself. He left that company to join the Donald Healy Motor Company over in London, but it was the grounding that he needed to start tuning those cars, and it was the grounding that actually led to those cars going over and creating that British fable of the little Sebring Sprites going over and winning at Sebring with Sterling and Pat Moss. And can you imagine what it must have been like for Sterling Moss? driving one of those tiny little Sebring Sprites with big Mustangs and stuff, Dodges and stuff, thundering pasture. It must have been amazing. I mean, it really must have been. And interestingly, you mentioned when he sold his company out in 1959 and he moved across to the Donald Healy Company as the manager of special equipment. He sold his shares in the previous company to none other than the legendary Graham Hill, Damon's father, and obviously, you know, a former winner of Grand Prix and, and so many other things. So... He was there. He was in amongst the great and the good the whole time. But as you say, to take that little car and be up against some of that American muscle must have been an incredible experience. But he was always very, you tell me, and other people that I've spoken to this week said he was always a very modest man and he just seemed to take it all in his stride. Yeah, he was one of those people, actually, uh, Graham Robson and I interviewed him on a number of occasions when we were lucky enough to have him here in the UK. And he was actually quite a difficult guy to interview because he was absolutely 100% modest and you know there were these amazing stories in there but to him they were just he didn't really want to sort of shout about it really but uh, certainly worth a look at some of his books and he was an accomplished author um, after his retirement from motorsport in 1973 his final hurrah really on the world stage was to organize the london to mexico world cup rally of 1970 um, that was another subject i had the pleasure of interviewing him on some years ago you would think that after a life retiring from motorsport having gone through motorsport in a time when it was at its most dangerous um, you'd settle into a nice quiet life and indeed he did actually set up a dealership selling British car brands to the northern home counties but it wasn't enough for him because then he went off to Greece and started windsurfing didn't he? <laughs> he did he actually that was his passion for water sports and sea adventures from his childhood as you rightly said at the beginning which you know was gained as a result of recovering from an illness at the time but he gained qualifications and there he was in Greece teaching the sport and you know, going out on the high seas yet again. So he's certainly a man who was never one to sit still, that's for sure. And in fact, he actually uh, represented Greece, didn't he, in 82-83 World Championships and 84 
world championships in windsurfing but thought of all things he then moved to hawaii amazing yeah not quite sure where the love of hawaii came from but um him and his wife carol moved out there and he had a lovely life in the sun wearing lots of hawaiian shirts <laughs> and, uh, wayne, uh, wayne if, if you can't if you can't imagine what the joy of hawaii is sitting there with the rum and coke <laughs> in the hawaiian shirt with your wife watching the sun come up and down then really I need to get you a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. It's a good point. Well, he is one of the amazing personalities that motorsport generated in that heyday of the 50s and 60s. He raced alongside some of the greats. He beat some of the greats. And his legacy will always be those awesome little Sebring Sprites of which there were six of them that had so much success across the pond racing in America in endurance racing. And this is a chance for us, isn't it, Richard, to recognise people, icons of motorsport that perhaps haven't had the fame that they perhaps deserved. No, it's an absolute pleasure also. And as I said, I've learnt a great deal of John's life and as somebody who's led a life in motorsport, I feel quite guilty that I haven't read up in, in more detail on him before. But thank you to you for bringing him to our notice and for assisting in putting him, as you rightfully say, into the JC Hall of Fame. John Sprinzel, who passed away in May this year. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, we are joined by a new motor racing diary and a special one because it is the diary of a novice, someone that has arrived on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club race championship grid for the very first time. And it is Matthew Davis. He's also the man in charge at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust. So doubly excited to have him not only on the grid this season, but here on the podcast as well. Hi, Matthew. Morning, Wayne. How are you? Very well, thanks. And uh, I understand you've been much more busy at weekends than normally you would be because, as I mentioned, you're now racing with us. So, so far, how have you found it? We'll start with Silverstone. It was, uh, well, to say it was a baptism of fire uh, <laughs> describes it in more ways than one, really, doesn't it? It was quite the start. I, I um, <laughs> There I was praying for no rain and uh, <laughs> we turned up to this glorious day at Silverstone, it couldn't have been nicer. And uh, we'd um, had the car at Goodwood um, a fortnight before just to sort of give it a good shakedown and get it ready. And it was absolutely stupendous at Goodwood. I was I was, couldn't wait to get to Silverstone in it. Um, so we uh, I, we got it out of qualifying and, and, and it was absolutely brilliant fun. I really enjoyed it. Then it was time to go out for the start, and I um, had a bit of an incident at the start, Wayne. The uh, car burst into flames on the start uh, <laughs> in front of goodness knows how many people on YouTube, and my poor daughter sitting at home <laughs> watching it alone going, oh, my goodness, what's happening to Dad? And, um, yeah, so the poor old car um, burst into flames, and um, I had to sort of scurry off to the marshal's post and watch from afar as they dumped three extinguishers worth of 
powder into the car to, to put it out. Tom at Swallows have been preparing the car for you. There's been so much work gone into that car. I mean, there must have been all sorts of emotions running through your head at that point. Were you worried about all of the work that had gone in and the destruction of all of that? I really was because a lot of the stuff they'd done was electrical. So we had a whole new ECU put in and, um, and, and it's all really good new stuff. So to watch it melt was a bit heartbreaking, I've got to say. And, my, and I just thought, gosh, that's it. It'll be first day of racing, last day of racing, if I'm not careful here. <laughs> so it, it was uh, oh, funny now I look back on it, but my, my heart was in my mouth as I walked off to the marshal's post. And, and, and there's a chap called Stuart who organises all the uh, classic touring car racing. And sadly, he clipped me uh, as I was stranded on the start line. And his lovely Capri, he's got this beautiful old Capri that was badly damaged, all mashed up along the side. So I just thought, oh, goodness, it, it, what a horrible start. But uh, I was safe, he was safe, and uh, we all live to fight another day. Well, you can watch this on the streams. They're still available on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club Facebook page if you want to relive the moment that Matthew's describing. Um, and uh, it was a moment. The commentary team were just about crawling out the commentary box on the uh, on the live stream at the time. But um, uh, did you find out what the problem was and how has it been fixed? Well, it's amazing uh, having that. If you're going to have an incident, Silverstone's the place to have it. The the setup there is incredible. They're so professional. Um, so as soon as the um, rescue truck had dropped my car back at the trailer, um, the safety stewards came up and had a good look at everything and diagnosed a split fuel rail. So the fuel rail came apart at the sort of um, junction that takes it up and across the top of the engine. Um, and there was I thinking something had gone wrong with the new ECU. I thought we'd programmed a hard stop in and that was supposed to be turned off for racing. And I thought, oh, wretched things on so i was uh trying to start the thing thinking it was a problem with that and it, and it was just pumping fuel over a hot engine so the inevitable happened unfortunately but i felt so sorry for tom and the gang at swallows because they'd put a lot of hard work into the car and uh it's just one of those things just an, an old bit of kit that was on the car from a previous life and it's the bit they hadn't changed that broke of course so well the good news is they've put even more hard work back into the car and it's now fixed and you were out at donnington last weekend i understand well i was out at donnington but my car wasn't unfortunately covid has meant that all sorts of important bits uh aren't, aren't c coming through to people who need them so they, they'd sort of got the car ready but we're waiting for some parts so we took the call on Wednesday before Donington to um, switch cars. So Tom and the Swallows team have bought uh, an XJ40. So the, the car I race and bought is a class D car, which is the sort of heavily modified category. The thinking being I'll be slow, best buy a fast car. Um, <laughs> and the, um, the, the car that Tom and the chaps have bought it's a well-known race car. I think it's, it's, it's an old war horse that's done a load of work in the past, um, but that's a class A car. So that's one of the unmodified cars that simply has the interior stripped out, a roll cage fire kit and a, and a cut off put in it. So um, I was in that in Donington. So uh, it, it was brilliant. I mean, a lovely, lovely car. So I probably should have bought a class A car to start with, but um I don't know, in for a penny, in for a pound, I thought. 
tell us how it did start because we've had uh, other members of your team on the podcast tony merigold we know very well of course the collections manager at uh, the jaguar daimler heritage trust we know that you and your team live breathe and love jaguars as much as we do here at the jc um so it's of no surprise that you're involved but how did this idea of racing for you start matthew uh, completely by accident, as all the best things do. So I um, I, I started the JDHD uh, around 18 months ago, which has been fantastic with COVID, but that's another story. And um, and when I got the job, I, I, I um, had a load of businesses at the other end of the country and have been living away for about 12 years. I, I live in South Warwickshire. So my very tolerant wife put up with all of that. Um, but when I sold my businesses and just have a little business left now, but I saw this ad appear for a, a job in, um, in Gaydon and thought, I've got to have a go at that. Anyway, long story short, got the job and said to my wife, um, now I'm home and uh, <laughs> a bit more available to be a bit more useful. Would you mind uh, if I finally got myself a lovely Jaguar? <laughs> I, I've always wanted one. And so she was, she's very, very good. And she said, yeah, okay, um, you, you can get yourself a Jaguar. So I was looking at the sort of affordable end of Jaguars and, you know, X100s and things like that. And I was looking around all the specialists and found uh, the Swallows site. And there was this rather mean looking race car advertised. So I just sort of phoned up and said, oh, you know, what's the score with this? I'm quite interested in that, that, that looks amazing thinking it'd be fun to have a track car. And Tom picked up the phone and said, uh, why don't you come down and have a look at it? So I drove down to Bristol, had a look at it. And Tom said, look, it's one thing doing track days. It's another thing doing racing. It's, it's the real deal. You should do it. And if you do do it, we will look after you as, as our second car. In effect, we, we, we go to all the race weekends. We're always there. We're really keen to get new people into the series. Um, if you come and race with us, we'll look after you. Um, and it just seemed like a really, really great idea. Um, and I thought, right, let's let's do that. It gives me something to aim for. And, you know, every day I walk past amazing cars at work and race, uh, wonderful race cars. And I just thought, uh, you can't work where I work and not do something interesting with a Jaguar. So no, absolutely. racing seemed like the best thing. <laughs> well, you know, it's great because you've you've literally come into racing as a novice and have discovered this world for the first time. Explain how that journey's been then. So you bought the car from Tom. I mean, you've got a head start already talking to Tom and the guys at Swallows. They know the stuff inside out. Yeah, they've just been terrific. Uh, they, they, they really know it inside out and, and they've been so kind in getting me established in the car. So I bought the car last summer and booked a couple of track days. So I thought, I just need to get time in it, get, get the hang of it. And, you know, they, they, they brought the car up for my first track day at Silverstone. It was on the GP circuit, torrential rain, absolutely terrifying. But Tom and Dan, Dan is the sort of uh, um, Tom's right-hand man in the car prep, the racing guy, and he's, he's a lovely fellow, really good at what he does. And the two of them came up um, to, to Silverstone and just spent the whole day with me, just getting me settled into the car, getting me, um comfortable with the whole setup and couldn't have been more helpful and and they all came with gary as well to goodwood at another track day and came along i had a great friend of mine with me to to come and drive with me there and, and, and it's just been wonderful because they've just 
put the time in and, and really got me going. Um, so I had a, did those track days last year. The, the plan was always to get my ARDS license, the racing license in time for this season. Um, so I did that down at Goodwood um, three days before I turned 50. <laughs> and, uh, and, then, um, and then, so I had that ticket and just booked in for all the JEC weekends this year. So it's um, really thanks to Swallows, I've got to say that they've, they've, they've made it so accessible to me and have um, really, really tried to get me involved in the best way possible, which, which has been terrific. Now, gentlemen never talk about money, so I won't ask you specific figures, but people might be surprised at how affordable it might be getting on the grid within the club race championship, might they? Yeah, and that's what tempted me into it because I was thinking, so let's just say you want to buy a track car. So I bought this, uh, you know, less than you'd pay for a good X100 XKR or something. It, It wasn't silly money at all you know, four figures, not five figures. And um, I, I put the um, sort of man mass to work. And if you look at a track day at Silverstone, that, that one I did was, I don't know, three three hundred and ninety-five pounds or something. And a round of racing on the JEC, I think is 425 pounds for Silverstone. So you look at it that way and think, well, I'm going to burn just as much fuel. Uh, it's going to cost me as much time and money and whatever to get there. And the entry fees pretty dissimilar, you know, not, not 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 very different to actually having a track day, and and you're doing the real thing. So when you add it all up, all the things that you can break still break on a track day. So I thought, well, come on then, let's have a go. So I'm I'm really just paying for um, the car preparation and the um, and that's what you'd pay for anyway if you were track on a track day sort of um, program. So. It's very reasonable, really. When you add it all up, the tyres aren't expensive. I think it's about 115 quid for a, one of these uh, Toyo Triple Eights. Now it's 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 all, I think, very reasonable. And what's the welcome been like for you up and down the paddock? Because we talk a lot about the racing family. Has it felt like a, a new family that you've joined since you've been racing? Yeah, particularly with the start I made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. yes, a blaze of glory is the way a you entered. Of, yes. Yeah, so it's been a bit weird because um, uh, on the first weekend at Silverstone, obviously I I, I left very quickly because I was very keen to get the car home and wash off all that corrosive um, fire extinguisher powder. So I didn't hang around to talk to anyone. So I was gone. But uh, it was so nice at Donington because at the end of the first race, when I sort of rolled into the assembly area at the end, uh, James Ram came up and gave me a big handshake and and he's he'd just won the race but he was almost as pleased i think that i'd got round in one piece and not gotten anyone's way so it, it's that sort of thing everyone sort of wanders over and says hello and introduces themselves and um uh and and it i have to say it did happen that uh, a few of them sent me uh a whatsapp message with a picture of the XJ6 thrust fire car that's within the JDHD <laughs> collection, which uh, seems to amuse everybody. But um, <laughs> I, I think they seem like a good fun bunch. They've been great so far. Having now recovered from the trauma of that first race, you're now looking at the season ahead of you. Uh, I guess this season for you is basically just a sort of learning curve to sit there, learn from the other guys, get yourself into it and get your head around the tracks and how the season pans out. Absolutely right. So um, the, 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 
the, the whole thing is just don't be a nuisance and bring the car home safely is my sort of mantra for this this season. Um, I, Donington, I drove like Miss Daisy. You can hear all about that another time, but uh, I, I was just determined to finish two races. Uh, so I did. And, and I think this whole season is going to be just try not to smash the car up and bring everyone home, bring it home safely. <laughs> well, we look forward to following your progress as you're going to deliver us diaries throughout the year as a uh, novice driver, a new driver on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club race circuits uh, this season. But um, you mentioned there, Matthew, the phrase, I've always wanted one. It's a phrase we hear a lot here at the JEC. And for many people, for many of our members, it is the realisation of a dream, finally, that they get this car, they join the club and enjoy all the benefits and the lifestyle that it gives them. So tell us about how long you've wanted one and what it was that made you want one in the first place does it go back to childhood oh yeah so i can tell you now it was a brown very early series three it was russet brown or whatever the equivalent is in jaguar language uh log log was the registration number of my dad's um xj6 that he had when i was a kid and then he, he sort of He'd have an XJ6 for a while. It would be horribly unreliable and he'd get fed up with it. Go and buy a, a BMW. So that then there'd be a BMW 78. And then he'd get bored with that because it wasn't interesting. Then he'd go back to a Jaguar. So we had an opalescent blue Series 3 X, uh, XJ6 after the BMW. Then, of course, that was troublesome. So he went back to a 735 BMW, got bored with that. And then he was back in C141 TPK, an absolutely glorious Dana double six in, in grey. And that was quite the most incredible car. So I've always had a soft spot for the big saloons. And I had a I had a um a, an X350 diesel um for a while, which was just a, a lovely thing. So it was um always going to be a Jaguar when I had the the time and money to well, the money, I think is the key point, to to go back to having a sort of special car, if you like. Well, not only have you had your special Jaguar arrive in your life, but of course you're in charge now of the biggest collection of historic Jaguars in the world, the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust, based at Gaydon, right next to the British Motor Museum. As you mentioned there, Matthew, challenging first 18 months for you in the role because of COVID and the restrictions on visitors coming through the doors. But um, as we now sort of look towards the future and doors opening and restrictions lifting, what great and exciting plans have the JDHT got and what's the strategy going forward for promoting those cars? Well, it, it, it's just kicking off now, as you'd imagine. So um, we're doing something with Coventry City of Culture this weekend, and um, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but I think it's going to be amazing. Um, and uh, that's so important to us, obviously, as Jaguar being involved in City of Culture for Coventry, a big year for Coventry. Um, and then we're, we're down at the London Concourse the following week. So I'm taking HDU, the last ever E-type beautiful car, down for that. And, um, and then the following weekend, we're off to Shelsley Walsh uh, for another big E-type party over that weekend. And, and it keeps rolling on from there. So we, we're just, the, the, the thing with the cars is we want to get them out to as many places as we can and, and get them in front of people and for people to get a chance to have a look at these wonderful cars. And um, 
and and that's why we always love working with JEC. You guys put on terrific events and uh, great, great friends to the JDHD. So we're really excited about BISTA and we've, we're just sort of putting together an amazing uh, group of cars to send over to, to the big uh, BISTA event on the 4th of July, which is something the volunteers I know are really looking forward to because our trust is only six people, but we have 25 volunteers and a lot of those volunteers are, are very um, experienced senior Jaguar people from the past. We've got some amazing people that volunteer for us, um, leading engineers, um, people who've run significant parts of the business. Um, so we, we we really like to put them in the cars uh, to take them to the events as a sort of um, thank you for coming in and doing the shift that they do, looking after the cars um, and helping us with the archive work and things like that. So um that that's the thing if, if people ask us to events we really do like to try and get the cars out there um and we're we're looking at um we, we have a really important relationship with the british motor museum so that's our home and uh, that we see them very much as a sort of sister trust to ours uh, we were both set up at the same time from the same beginnings um so we, we really do enjoy working with the senior team at British Motor Museum at putting on events. So we've got the Gaiden Gatherings uh, starting up now, um, uh, I think the second Tuesday of every month. Um, and, uh, and and the great success that's really sort of crept up on the, on the, on the quiet, it's just become a huge success of the Saturday Breakfast Clubs. I was up at Gaiden uh, weekend before last for the first one, just taking my daughter to the Young Drivers School. And uh, I think we had 580 cars stand up. Absolutely amazing. Um, totally sold out and uh, and just a great atmosphere. So all those sort of events, we, we want to do as much as we can to support the museum and, and bringing people in because it means then we can open up the collection and people can see the collection. And at the first Gaiden gathering we had this year, we had the first and last uh, drop tops E-types out. So 77RW and uh, HDU were driven around the car park. And then we park them outside the collection centre, put the bonnets up and let everyone have a good look at them. So we, we're sort of planning with the museum team, uh, lots of sort of interesting anniversaries and events, and we'll, we'll be bringing something amazing out whenever we can to those things. And um, the other thing we're really excited about is, uh, again, we're working with you guys on the centenary of, of, of Swallow. Uh, which is next year. So we're, we're really in the thick of planning all of that. Tony and Maggie were up in Blackpool last week, um, um, getting to getting that sort of whole trip together. So that's something we're hoping to um, to, to be putting out there to the to the membership soon. Um, and and then we're just looking at other things we can do with the collection. I'm I'm really keen to sort of do more with what we have and I'm looking at what can we do that no one else can do and, and can we put together um, sort of experiences at the trust uh, which would really appeal to the Jaguar enthusiasts and I think there are lots of things we can do on that front so um, we put a little survey in last week spotlight just to see what people thought of a few of the ideas and we've had a great response to that so thank you to those of you that uh, filled in the uh, survey um, so we've we've a lot to do uh, and um, can't wait to get on with it. 
Well, it's fantastic to hear all these great plans and, and fantastic to hear you talk about getting the cars out and running and seen because this is the thing that brings heritage and history alive, isn't it? It's nice to see cars in museums, but what really captures people's imaginations is when they hear the engines, they see them moving, and it's important to protect that, isn't it? To make sure that we can still keep doing that and keep seeing these cars and understand how exciting and pivotal they are to our, our own history because it's not just engineering history we're talking about here it's the history of society and who we are as a nation yeah it's so true and um uh, it's just when you have a big um event and you walk around the car park and just hear all the chatter amongst the enthusiasts there and you hear them sort of telling their stories about the cars and what it meant to their dad or their uncle or their mum or you know every, every car has a story and it all means something to people and and that's why we're so keen to to to, to open the doors and, and get the cars out there for people to see and experience and we're very lucky because um jaguar uh, land rover classic workshop provide us with a full-time technician and an apprentice so um it means that with with that resource and we've got the work a really great workshop at the motor museum and with all the all the volunteers that come in and, and work on the cars we we do try and keep as many on a current MOT as we can, so that we can get them out and, and get them moving. Because there's nothing worse for an old car than having it parked up and never used. I'm just imagining what that apprentice must be saying down the pub when he gets home from work. So what have you been doing today? Ah, you know, just uh, working on the Group A winning XJS that TWR built in the 70s. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> what a great job to have. <laughs> it, 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 I, it, we've got a lovely chat, Matt, uh, working with us at the moment. And and, and what's wonderful is he, he, he gets it, he loves it. And, uh, and, and that's a great thing. People always sort of say to me, uh, you know, it's an old man's game. And I said, no, it isn't. Um, there are so many, you know, I've, I've got um, a, a, a couple of sons of friends of mine who are really keen on the whole Jaguar scene and want to come and see the cars and visit the events and do all of that. And it, and it pulls through the generations. I think uh, it's pretty hard not to be impressed by um uh, a TWR V12 on full song, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I suppose as cars get more utilitarian in a way, they're kind of a little bit like your white goods in your kitchen in some respects these days, apart from the exotic stuff and obviously the stuff that Jaguar turn out. But um, as cars perhaps on our everyday roads become less interesting, perhaps the place for heritage vehicles and the excitement of what they bring becomes all the more important for the future and for future generations. Yeah, I think it's so important that we keep all of this alive and find a way to do that. But I'm also really excited about where it's all heading. You know, I'm, I'm uh, we, we just we've we've got on loan in the collection uh, one of the e-racers, the electric um, um, Formula E cars. And that's a heck of a bit of engineering when you look at it. We've got it sitting there next to um, the the Formula One car. I think it's two thousand and three car. And uh, and and I just look at how though the developments coming along on that series, and and I'm sort of just really relieved and pleased that Jaguar are winning races. They're out there at the weekend winning races in in Formula E, and I think that's for all of us Jaguar lovers. Uh, it's brilliant to see that the, the company's looking forward and trying to be at the vanguard of electric cars and, and is doing that on the racetrack like it always used to. So 
I'm sort of heartened by that and, and just hope that the, uh, you know, the commercial team find a good way through for, for the, for the future of the, of the product and the, and the brand. And I'm, I'm sure they will. There's some amazing people at JLR that I've, you know, had the chance to meet and um, I'm excited to see what they come up with. I'm utterly convinced that in years to come, you'll have the very first or the very last I-Pace sat in the collection at JDHT and we'll all be fawning over it saying, wow, this was the pivotal moment it all changed when Jaguar, you know, piloted affordable luxury electric vehicles. And I'm pretty convinced the I-Pace, because you never appreciate it at the time, but when you look back is when it becomes a piece of history, when you realise later on how significant it was. And I'm pretty convinced the Jaguar I-Pace is going to be one of those significant historical vehicles of the future. And I agree. And I think if you, if you just look at what the mark means and what it sort of built its reputation on, uh, the I-Pace does all of that. God, if anything is grey space pace, it's an I-Pace. And um, it, it's it, it's just a fantastic device. I mean, I, I wish I could have one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, remind us, Matthew, of how we firstly find out more information about what's happening at the JDHT and also some details now that things have opened up on how uh, JC members can go and visit the collection. Well, the, the, the British Motor Museum... Um, really needs some support and help. They've had a torrid time through COVID. Um, they've done incredibly well with getting grant support and everything to keep going. But now's the difficult bit. I think um, they need visitors. So please come up to the British Motor Museum. Um, we, we are sort of an exhibit within, a collection within the British Motor Museum. So if you want to come and see us, you buy a ticket to go around the British Motor Museum. So. Um, to learn more about us and more what we're up to, go to jaguarheritage.com. Jaguarheritage.com is our website, and and all our sort of news will be there and details about the collection and um, how you can buy a heritage certificate and all those sorts of things. And then if you go to the British Motor Museum website, um, come up and see us because we 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 would really love to. Um, to, to see as many people come up to the museum over the next year as we can get and keep supporting the Saturday breakfast clubs because they're just a great event. And um, the big thing we've got brewing, first weekend of September on the Saturday uh, in sort of um, honour of Sir William's 120th birthday, would you believe? Um, we're, we're doing a big Jaguars at Gaiden festival in the same way that we did last year, which was huge. I think we had over 700 cars uh, on that weekend last year and we had fantastic support from everybody. Um, but do come up to that. We're, we're, we're going to celebrate um, 25 years of the XK8, um, obviously 60 years of the E-Type and the Mark 10 and 20 years, of course, of, of the uh, X-Type. So there's a, there's a lot for us to celebrate. Everybody's going to have a sort of special corner of the car park for their, their anniversary model. And, um, that, that would be terrific if we could get as many of you up there to join us. 
Brilliant. And of course, as we mentioned, it is exactly a month until the Summer Jaguar Festival at Bista Heritage, where you can also see more of the JDHT collection cars out on track, not just parked up, but moving as well. And you can even go and have a ride in some of them. All the details on the JC event site at jc.org.uk forward slash festival. We'll look forward to seeing those cars there, but we won't see you there, Matthew, because you are out at Castle Coombe. So looking forward to the next round yeah I, I, i'm really hoping my car's ready um so if if it is uh it, I'll, I'll be there at Coombe. uh if not i think that they um they'll, they'll lend me the other car i don't know we'll see but uh I, I need to get my uh hours in on the racetrack and i've i've paid the entry so i better go there and i'm gutted gutted to be missing vista because i think that's going to be a wonderful event so uh oh. What a shame you can't be in two places at once. It's a worthy cause. We'll let you off this time and we'll look forward to hearing from you uh, in future episodes of how you're getting on this season. So uh, Matthew Davis, MD of Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and of course one of our competitors on the race championship. Thanks for joining us. It's been a great pleasure, Wayne. And thanks. These podcasts have been terrific. Uh, You're doing a great job. Thanks for putting them out there for us all. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. This week, Tom brings us his diary from behind the scenes at the second round of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Championship over Maybank Holiday at Donington Park. Just literally got back to the pits from qualifying and uh, unfortunately it was an absolute disaster to be honest. Um, the car had an absolute horrendous misfire, um, literally within the first um, two straights out of the pits, I felt it straight away. So I came straight back round into to the pit lane and uh, Dan, one of our guys, has, was uh, had a quick look under the bonnet to see if he can find anything wrong. Um, we just popped the coils, couldn't see anything obvious. Um, so we refitted the coils back in um, and went back out on track. Unfortunately, the misfire was still there, so I came back in again. Um, we connected up the laptop and, and had a quick look at the data and we could see that we had a misfire on two cylinders. Um, so uh, my brother Jack ran back to the pits to try and get the two coils in time, but obviously we're running out of time to qualify. Now you do have to get a minimum of three laps in to qualify. So um, Jack um, got two coils and we literally got those fitted. I went straight out of the pits. As I come back round, the, the checkered flag was out. So unfortunately we didn't get a chance to get any qualifying time in, which was not what we intended to do. And I just can't believe that the car was absolutely fine. Obviously testing it, running, and as soon as we get straight on, track for the first qualifier it's it's misfiring like crazy which is really frustrating so i've just been up to see the clerk of the course i have definitely um qualified which is a good sign downside is that for race one i'm going to be starting in 32nd which is completely at the back of the grid now for some reason which i'm not sure why um it doesn't look like they're splitting us into two separate races it looks like we're going off as one race so I am going to be right at the very back following the pre-83 as well. So, um, yeah, it's going to be a bit of a tough one, really. I'm unfortunately looking at where I am. I'm going to have to 
kind of work my way up as far as I can get to get a decent uh, qualification for race two, um, then hopefully we've got a chance at making our way back up to the front um, in race two. But it's going to be a real, real hard one in race one, unfortunately. So we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to pull the plugs in a minute and see if we can find out what's going on. I suspect the plugs are fouled up where it has been misfiring. So I'm hoping it is just a case of putting a set of plugs in it. We've obviously already replaced those two coils. Um, and then, yeah, we'll see what we can do in race one. But it's going to be pretty hard work. So the good news, we've sorted misfire with the car. Um, it was the plugs. They were just um, fouled up where there was such heavy misfire. So the car's definitely running as normal. I can't get it out on track, obviously, um, but we've driven it around the pits and I can just about get it to, to load up enough to, to prove that it wasn't there, whereas I could get it to do that before. So I'm confident we resolved that. We could see on the data um, that it was two cylinders and those plugs were particularly bad. So bit of bad luck there really um frustrating that a coil um failed and it was absolutely fine testing it but i guess that's just racing so um yeah we're just about to be called up it's um races at 13 um 40 so not long now um fingers crossed uh we can get our way as far up the grid as possible so that we got half chance in race two and uh hopefully matthew's gonna have a good time as well um we haven't needed to do anything to matthew car we've gone round it and checked all the levels and stuff everything's absolutely fine made a couple of amendments to the tire pressures because it is really starting to warm up here so um i think we're going to be seeing highs of sort of 25 degrees which uh they're sort of saying on the radio and uh, the weather forecast can be one of the hottest days of the year so uh, i can already feel the heat and uh, i must admit i'm not looking forward to getting into the fire retardant race suit and zipped up with a helmet with these kind of temperatures but um yeah just got to drink plenty of water and uh, see if we can make it as far up the grid as possible now i've just cooled down after race uh, one it was absolutely scorching in that car but um unfortunately we're still having issues um with my xjr6 um the misfire itself um wasn't there initially i managed to get a couple of laps in um at full performance um and as we've talked about previously on some of the podcasts we've got a huge amount of safety parameters on this xjr6 um to help with development and to just avoid any damage we've we have had, en had engine damage in the past uh pushing limitations of these engines so um, it was reducing performance massively and I was getting quite hot engine temperatures so it's pretty hard um, from my perspective trying to, to manage that I was having to um, reduce performance myself by um, not driving full throttle on certain parts of the straight and having to do quick laps and then hold back so it was really frustrating I did make a, a fair way up the grid um, I ended up in in 12th um, which which I'm happy with to, to be brutally honest given the circumstances I was in two minds whether to to bring the car back in um, obviously I didn't want to damage anything so I was very cautious of that um, I did have a good fun racing out there we did have some battles I had a great battle with Mike Seaborn and Derek Pierce um, they they were absolutely flying both of them and Mike had an absolutely amazing drive um, I think he pipped um, Derek on the on the last chicane on the straight um, for the class win which fair play to him was an absolute stunning move um, and we, we did have a little bit of a battle which was absolutely great fun so um, but yeah just having to manage these temperatures so gonna have to look over the data and find out what's going on there it's so frustrating that we're getting issues but we have got plenty of time um, for race two it's not till uh, 10 to 5 so 
fingers crossed we can resolve what's going on there for race two. James actually won the race. Um, Guy Conyu um, bagged second and Colin Philbot came in third. I think Colin um, has also been having troubles of a misfire as well. So um, there's definitely a few cars out there with some issues at the moment and I'm sure this this scorching heat is uh, pushing the limitations a little bit more. So um, yeah, it, like I said, we've got race two to try and see what we can do. Um, but it's definitely going to be pretty tough, especially with the um, with all those guys out front. They're going to have a clear run. Um, and I'm sure Colin will get his resolve for race two as well. So it's all to play for. So we're now working on my car, trying to work out exactly what was going on in race one. And we've, we found quite a few issues. So um, we run um, data logging systems. So we've been able to actually go back through the race and try and see what, what is going on. And it looks like the actual car is mechanically reducing, uh, sorry, electronically reducing performance because um, one of the safety parameters that we've set is is been exceeded. So um, we can see that the intake temperature is quite high in a couple of places and the engine temperatures we can see where I was getting overheating issues and quite a lot of those corrections are put in place from the ECU perspective to um, reduce performance to avoid damage. So um, we can't actually see what it is that is faulting at the moment, which is really frustrating. There's a lot of data to look through, so we're, we're trying to get away through that and see if we can see exactly whether we've got a sensor that's failing or whether we've got a faulty reading or whether we are getting a problem. Now, we have found that the rear back boxes on the car, um, we use like a repackable silencer and we can actually see that the end count on one has come completely off, which is, was actually restricting the exhaust massively. So we're potentially thinking that that was what was reducing the performance and creating the exhaust temperatures to rise massively, which is then causing the ECU to retard the ignition timing and reduce performance because we run engine, uh, sorry, uh, exhaust gas temperature sensors. So that's what it looks like is happening at the moment. So we're going to have to remove the complete exhaust system um, and we can take the end cap off and and move that and relocate that we're going to have to make a mad rush over to, to screw fix to try and get some stainless rivets to to refit that uh, and we're going to repack the silencer and hopefully that will sort all of our issues out all of the engine temperatures etc we're thinking are related to the fact that it's because it's retarding the ignition timing so drastically that can cause really high temperatures and the, the ecu is trying to equate for that and it's adding fuel accordingly so it's safe and there's no obvious damage to the engine which is the main thing um, but unfortunately I'm just not going to know till I get out in race two to see whether this is rectified. Now that's race two finished up with and uh, unfortunately there was no improvements on the car it was within two laps it was reducing performance hugely which is uh, just absolutely gutted to be honest so I decided not to to risk damage damaging the car and uh, retired the car for the race um it's yeah not what we wanted to be to be doing this weekend um but that, that's racing i guess we're, we're we're doing things with these cars that we shouldn't be um we've got all of these safety precautions on these cars on my car to avoid um, causing any damage to the engine so it's doing what it's what it's meant to do um, we just don't know why yet when we get the car back into the workshop we'll be able to have a a real good analyzation over all the the race data and see exactly what's going on there um, but i was seeing well over sort of 100 degree engine temperatures which is just not good we just didn't want to risk it at all frustratingly i actually had a really good start and started to make my way up through the numbers already um, but like i said after lap one pretty much it was back to a, to reducing performance and hesitating hugely which was so frustrating um, but we've decided to put the car away on the trailer and just not risk it um, it's just not worth it 
Um, congratulations to James. He, he won both races. Um, Colin didn't make it out for this race either. Um, and I think Guy also had a mechanical issue. So, um, yeah, there's been more than one of us that have had issues this weekend. Um, it's just frustrating, but, but unfortunately, I guess that's just racing. But either way, we're going to get the car back in the workshop and uh, we'll get it sorted ready for uh, for Castle Coombe. Castle Coombe is my local circuit. I absolutely love Castle Coombe. It's really hard work racing there because it's such a tight track. So we've really got to make sure we get this resolved. Um, we'll try and get a test day in beforehand just to make sure we have rectified this issue. And uh, yeah, fingers crossed we can improve the results there. But um, that's obviously going to affect us massively in the championship. But fingers crossed we can catch up with the results later in the year. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.